if I have someone who's a 3A and stable, most of the time, if they don't have another joint injury, they'll stay that way their whole life usually. So I've changed my thinking over the years. I used to think that the bite caused the disc to displace. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. I used to work in the emergency department of a, a very large dental hostel. This was like a year and a half out of dental school. And I'll never forget this one patient I had, right? She came in and uh, it's an emergency that I'd never seen before. Like like 99% was like acute pulpitis or an abscess. And you know, we were doing extirpations and stuff. Now this lady came in and she was literally like her, her mandible was all to one side. She was literally all deranged. She was in agony. She's pointing to her jaw joint. I forget which side she was pointing on now, but she was in absolute agony and just everything about her bite looked way off, right? And I had no idea what the diagnosis was. I didn't know, I had no idea what to do. So um, naturally what I did, uh, the first thing I thought was, okay, um, looks like it could be something to do with the TMJ. I'm thinking TMD, uh, therefore, uh, uh, what do we do? Um, oh why don't we get a radiograph, okay? Because that's what we do with teeth, right? We take a radiograph. So uh, I suggested we get an OPG, okay? So I sent this lady for an OPG, okay? Anyway, the OPG comes back and you can't really notice anything unusual on it. And I show it to my consultant and my consultant absolutely flips at me. It's like, Jazz, what the hell did you take an OPG for, right? Because an OPG is not gonna show you much when it comes to TMD, all right? So that was lesson number one I had several years ago and I wanna share that with you. And on that topic, uh, I have brought on someone absolutely amazing today. He's from the Spear faculty. I've got huge respect for Spear Education Online uh, and what they achieve in their, in their training facility, which I'd love to go to one day in Scottsdale, Arizona. I've got Dr. Jim McKee, who's a real authority when it comes to imaging for TMD uh, and generally, about occlusion, you know, and, and raising the OVD and treatment planning and all these kind of things. So it's great to have him on the podcast today on behalf of Spear. Hello, Producer Rati. I'm Jazz Glati. Uh, welcome to new listeners. Really great to have you on. Uh, and as usual, all my usual listeners, thank you so much for continuing to come back for more nuggets and more gems. Today's gems are all around uh, the Piper classification for TMJ. This is something I teach on my splint course, but I want to hear it from Jim, who's been teaching it for way longer and applying it. I want to find out the clinical applications of, of the Piper classification, and I'm sure he will do a great job of explaining it way better than I ever could. Uh, so I've got Jim speaking about that. Also about the clinical relevance of little things like clicks. What about patients with asymptomatic clicks? What's the best way to manage those patients? So there's a lot of um, real world TMJ anatomy related dilemmas that I'm gonna give you answers for today. The protrusive dental pearl I have for you today is regarding TMJ diagnosis and examination. Whenever you're examining your patient's range of motion, when you get the patient to open up, you wanna observe that they make a, a nice straight line path of opening. Uh, and what happens if their uh, path of opening isn't normal and straight, it goes to one side. How do you write that in the notes? Simple thing is you draw it, but nowadays we're all digital. So how can you describe it without having to somehow digitally draw it? Well, if the mandible, okay, um, does a um, shimmy. So what I mean is, let, let's say someone's opening up, moving their mandible to the right, and then back to the left and down to the middle again, okay? Because the, the, the path or the trajectory uh, that if you draw a line from the chin going down as they open their mouth and it makes a little V shape, think of V, think of deviation. So if someone's uh, jaw shimmies to one side and comes back, that's a deviation, okay? Now, if someone's uh, jaw opens and then it goes all the way to one side and it doesn't go back to the middle again, that's a deflection. So that's how you uh, differentiate between a, a deviation. The deviation has a V in it, therefore there's a V shape in its path. And deflection doesn't have a V in it. It's a sort of um, down straight and then off to one side and it stays there, it deflects to one side. That's a cool little tip to remember in terms of deviation, deflection, uh, and that's something you should write in your notes. In terms of management and stuff, I hope you enjoy this one guys and I'll see you in the outro. Dr. Jim McKee, welcome to the Petrusa Dental Podcast. How are you? I'm awesome, it's great to be here. 
It's so great to have uh, you on because, gosh, I've been I've been having a look at your your presence on Spear and the kinds of group as and as a collective. Spear education has meant so much to me in my journey. Sure. I'm afraid I've never been able to come over to Scottsdale, Arizona yet. But the amount of uh, sort of uh, articles I read on your website, the the online membership, uh, all the sort of videos I've watched from Frank Spear, Frank Spear, Gary DeWood, uh, and now being able to speak to you. I mean, you guys have had a huge influence on me. So thank you so much for making time to come on the podcast today. Well, it is truly my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's truly an honor. Please tell us, for those who don't know who you are, Dr. McKee, um, a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, who you work with. I mean, we were just speaking earlier. Obviously, we, we, there are some huge names, including yourself, in the Spear faculty. Obviously, I think Jason Smithson from the UK has sure. recently joined your team as well. So, you know, you guys got some superstars. But tell us about you. Tell us about you, Dr. McKee. Well, it's kind of an interesting story. You know, I, got a, I graduated from dental school in 1984 and really didn't know what I was going to do. And there was a woman who was in practice in Downers Grove, which is about 45 minutes southwest of Chicago, typical Chicago suburb. And she wanted to transition her practice because she wanted to spend more time with her children and I needed to practice. So that's how it started. But it was a really, really small practice. First day in practice, I did uh, a root canal or did a amalgam buildup on number, um, it would be 37 in the international numbering system. Um, and I did, a, that was at eight o'clock in the morning and at four o'clock, I did a, uh, a root canal on number 27. And I said, I'm proud to say the amalgam buildup patient's still a patient in the practice and the endo patient is why I don't do endo. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> but it was a small practice and gradually for the first four or five years, I just kind of felt my way through it, kind of getting my feet underneath me. But I was starting to see cases that were making me uncomfortable. Where cases specifically, clicking and popping joints specifically. I didn't know how to treat those because my experience, I think, is similar to many dentists that I've talked to. Our training and occlusion and TMD and dental school doesn't lead to a lot of confidence when we get out of school. So I ended up, um, Pete Dawson is a name. Pete was a huge name in occlusion. And I got a seminar, a flyer for a seminar that Pete was doing in Chicago. And I took the train downtown to hear him. And I had been out four and a half years, and it was the first time that it made sense to me. Mm-hmm. From there, I started going down and hearing what Pete had to say, and I would take his courses. A year later, I met an oral surgeon that Pete worked with. His name was Mark Piper. And Mark and I became very good friends. So it was kind of interesting. If you go back and look at a lot of dentists, how they got trained in occlusion, they learned the occlusion side first, and then later they learned the joint part. I was really fortunate because I kind of was able to learn both of those together from working with Pete and with working with Mark. So in terms of my thought process, I've always thought about the joints and the teeth as almost one unit, just on different parts of the system. So from there, I just started basically doing as much CE as I could in terms of occlusion and TMD. I learned how to image again from Mark early in the 1990s. So I took my first MRI in 1991. And I started seeing a lot of patients who had these types of problems. I also started a local study club in our community because there were a lot of dentists at that time, either going to hear Pete Dawson or going to the Pankey Institute. And we were trying to implement those concepts into our practice. So I started the study club. And then eventually the Dawson Academy asked me if I would come down and teach with them. So that's how I started teaching. So I taught um, at the Pank Institute, I th- taught with Pete Dawson for 13 or 14 years. I taught with Mark Piper for 10 years. We ran a study club program. And I've been at Spear for about five years now, I think. So it's really been, I never thought I'd be doing teaching or lecturing. It's been so much fun. I've met so many wonderful people. And I've really, I've had a great time doing it. So I feel really, really fortunate. Um, so recently I have another dentist in the practice now, a wonderful woman who joined us, Dr. Courtney Donkow. So right now what I do is I practice eight days a month and then, um, I'm part of the occlusion seminar. It's Spear Education with Frank Spear and Greg Kinzer. And then I teach the advanced occlusion workshop with Gary DeWood. That's the workshop that's kind of focused on patients who do have joint problems and, How do you manage those in the regular world? Because we see those patients every day. 
So that's a little bit about me. As you were talking and you're mentioning all these giants in occlusion and dentistry, honestly, every time you mention one of these guys, I, I get like a little bit excited. So one thing you have to learn about me is I get very excitable when it comes to the, these exact topics. So it's so, so amazing to have you on, Dr. Mickey, because I know we're going to learn so much from, from you regarding exactly what you're talking about, the confusions that we have in general practice about uh, the TMJ anatomy and the diagnoses we can make and how to manage these cases. Now, we could have gone in any direction in terms of what to speak about. But something I haven't spoken about yet um, in this podcast is imaging and how that can relate to classifications and how that can relate to the person in front of you in the chair. So I'm hoping you're going to give us a, a little bit of tour, a little bit of flavor on that. So my first question to start that off, and it's so great to hear about your history with Mark Piper, is obviously some of us all may or may not have heard of the, of the Piper classification. It's something that I'm quite familiar with. I, I use it. But I want to know if you, if you just don't mind just summarizing for the dentist listening all over the world, what is the Piper classification? And then maybe give us a flavor of if there are any other classifications that you use and if they are superior, inferior, just your general uh, viewpoint on that. For sure. Um, well, let's start out with the Piper classification. You know, it's funny. Mark Piper is known as an oral surgeon. But honestly, I have to say, I think Mark's greatest contribution to dentistry has been his Piper classification because as a restorative dentist, what it allows me to do almost instantly is to assess the level of risk that I have in the restorative patient sitting in my chair. And I'll get an idea whether I have to worry about potential pain issues in the future or whether I'll have to worry about potential occlusion issues in the future. So the Piper classification is really easy to work with. Here's the easiest way to think about it. If we think about the condyle, there's a medial pole and there's a lateral pole. And there's a disc that attaches to the medial and lateral pole, basically like a bucket handle. There's a ligament attachment at the lateral aspect and there's a ligament attachment at the medial aspect. The reason why I like Mark's classification system in the restorative world, and I'll talk about a couple other ones that are out there too, is because the medial pole for me really becomes an important discussion point. Because if you look at joint anatomy, the joint socket on the medial aspect offers dense, thick bone that's ideal for dissipating the bite forces that we generate when we function or parafunction. So if we can have the loading forces pass through the medial pole, and if we can have soft tissue at the medial pole, most of the time those cases are going to be very predictable. So in terms of Piper classification, Mark has different classifications. There's a Piper 1, a Piper 2, a Piper 3A, 3B, and then there's 4A, 4B, 5A, and 5B. So let's go 1 to 3B first. Four separate classifications, or four separate stages. 1, 2, 3A, and 3B. All those share one common characteristic. The soft tissue is covering the medial pole. So if that's the case, those cases tend to be very low risk cases for restorative patient, for restorative patients and dentists doing restorative dentistry. Because if we have the disc at the medial pole, generally we can dissipate the load very efficiently and the disc maintains the position of the condyle. We don't think about the disc in that way, but I really think as a restorative dentist, what the disc is, and this is a term that I heard Mark say, it's the holding contact in the joint. Mm -hmm. Pete Dawson talked about holding contacts at the tooth level so you can maintain a stable occlusion, but that's basically what the disc does at the joint level. It's the holding contact where the condyle functions against. So as long as the disc is at the medial pole, those are really predictable cases. So a Piper stage one, disc coverage at the medial, disc coverage at the lateral. If you look from the top, the bone's completely protected. Normal joint, easy case. Piper stage two, beginning laxity at the lateral pole, medial pole still intact. This might be the patient who has an intermittent click. They wake up in the morning, they click for 10 or 15 minutes, and it goes away. Typically, not a lot of pain, not a lot of bite changes. Okay, let's move to Piper 3. This threes. is where it gets very interesting because people often uh, – my, my issue with the Piper classification is – 
just like you said, I think it's really simple. But people, when they first look at, oh my God, there's you know four or five different classifications, and 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 they they look at the numbers and they look at the diagram, and they don't just pause for a second. And just appreciate that actually it's really simple. And what you've done already is really massively oh, okay. simplified it by, by saying that stages one to three and the definition with the medial pole uh, and the medial surface, uh, that really helps already. So I, I think anyone who's listening and watching at the moment yeah. can really easily follow along mm. so far. So don't, don't get confused or don't let this worry you or confuse you because actually it's a really simple classification. It just gets a little bit exciting here. Well, okay. So the threes are related to the lateral pole. So again, everything up one, two, three A and three B, medial poles all intact. Three A, we've got a lateral pole click, a typical dis displacement with reduction at the lateral pole. Three B is a dis displacement without reduction. So we don't click anymore at the lateral pole. That's it. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this, the Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. So that's 1 to 3B. Just before we go to 4 and 5, uh, Dr. Mikis, um, we have a lot of young audience. We have a lot of international audience as well. Uh, so can you just uh, clarify for them that uh, what do you mean by disc displacement with reduction and disc displacement without reduction? Because a lot of people, uh, a lot of young dentists were, may not have heard this term before. So if you could just, just briefly describe that as well. So a disc displacement with reduction is when the disc is forward and the condyle opens and moves back underneath it. Now, in order for that to happen, the disc has to maintain its shape. And as long as the disc maintains its shape, then that condyle can get back underneath that disc. When a disc comes off the condyle, though, it's important to understand how a disc gets its nutrition. Typically, a disc will get its nutrition from lubrication fluid or synovial fluid being compressed into it. It wouldn't make sense to have a blood vessel there because you compress the blood vessel when we compress the condyle pushing into the disc. So it gets its nutrition from lubrication fluid. If the disc is not in the correct position to have lubrication fluid compressed into it, that disc can start to change shape. And if it starts to change shape, those are the cases where the condyle can't get back underneath it. Reducing is kind of a, it's a confusing term. I agree with you. I don't like the term, but it's typically what's used in the literature. So that's why I try to tie that because some people will be you know, familiar with that. So here's the easiest way to think about it. With reduction means it clicks. Without reduction means it doesn't click. That's, I think that's how I think about it, the easiest way. Uh, one thing that I helped me as well to understand it is like the term reduce is like when you reduce a fracture. You put it together. So when, when the disc is yeah. re reducing, it's putting back where it belongs on the condyle. So that's another a great way that's helped me in the past. So thanks so much for, for covering that. You were just about to come on to uh, number, uh, number four, I think. Well, now that we understand threes, let's talk about 4A and 4B because it's the same principle. But instead of threes being at the lateral pole, fours are at the medial pole. So a 4A would be a disc displacement with reduction or a disc that clicks now at the medial pole, whereas 4B would be a disc displacement without reduction or the condyle cannot get back under the disc at the medial pole. Okay? So a similar thought process, 3A and 3B relates to lateral pole, 4A and 4B relates to medial pole. And the last are the fives. There's a 5A and 5B. And with fives, just think this. It's perforated all the way through, so it's bone against bone. 5A is acute. 5B is chronic. So that's really the Piper classification. In my mind, I think, is it structurally intact, which is a one or two? Is it structurally altered at the lateral pole? 
which is a 3A or 3B, or is it structurally altered at the lateral pole and medial pole, which would be a 4A, 4B, or 5A, 5B? And once I do that, that's kind of how I think about it. Structurally intact, Piper 1 and 2 have low risk factors. Piper 3A and 3B has low to moderate, typically low risk factors. And Piper 4A, 4B, 5A, and 5B typically have a higher risk factor because that's where the medial pole isn't covered. So as a result, we tend to see an increase in pain or potential bite instability. And just to make it really tangible for, for the young dentist listening is that um, what you mean by, by risk is exactly how you mentioned there. Like if you rehabilitate someone and you haven't identified which piper classification or the health of the joint itself, then you are, you are constantly having to... Uh, you're constantly chasing a moving target. So there is a lack of uh, stability and then you get constant supposed bite changes. Is that the main, uh, is that one of the worries about treating someone or rehabilitating someone who is at uh, a higher number in terms of piper classification? I think that's always the concern. Now, having said that, you can, you can work on patients who have medial pole problems. I don't, I don't want people to think that you can't work on people and I'm going to say something real clearly. Not everyone needs surgery who has a four or five because that's one of the common misconceptions as well. All this does is to be able to articulate the risk so you can communicate well, it to the patient. That's really what I'm thinking about it for. And basically, risk generally develops in one of two ways. Either bite instability, as you mentioned, because the gasket or the disc isn't there to position the condyle, or... We've got pain that occurs because we've got loading on injured tissues. I mean, that's the easiest way to think about it. I absolutely love it. That, that, that's going to really help clarify that. Yeah. I think we've made occlusion and TMD too complicated because we didn't understand it because mm -hmm. we never saw the anatomy. Once you see the anatomy with imaging, it really takes all the concern away because you finally have a good idea on what well, you're doing. Well, before we touch on imaging, um, just tell us, are there any other useful classifications that we should uh, consider reading up on? You know, the, the, the two other ones you typically hear about are research diagnostic criteria that was developed by the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. And it's an excellent classification system. In my experience, many times the dentists who use that tend to have an orofacial pain practice. That's not what I have. I'm a restorative dentist, and I see patients who will have some pain issues, but primarily my referral base is general dentists with either joint cases that are more complex than they want to handle or restorative cases that are more complex than they want to handle. I never tried to develop a facial pain practice. That was not my intention. So I know a lot of the people that will use that classification system tend to focus more on facial pain. So I don't use that. I like the Piper one because I think it relates more to the restorative world. Um, the Wilkes classification system is the other big classification system. Clyde Wilkes was a fabulous oral surgeon out of Minnesota, and he developed the surgical uh, – he was an oral surgeon. And his many times is very popular with oral surgeons because a lot of times it has a surgical approach to it. So it all depends kind of on what type of practice you have. For restorative dentists, and probably most of the people who will be listening to this podcast, I think the Piper classification is a really easy way for the restorative dentist to organize their thoughts, to be able to communicate not only with patients, but with other colleagues that they work with as well. I'm going to make a little infographic for everyone to download based on everything, the, the beautiful way that Dr. Jim McKee explained things. We'll make a little infographic so it can help you to remember and maybe stick it up on your practice wall, courtesy of Spear and Petrusa Dental Podcast. You'll always have that. And, you know, one or two times you learn it, you'll always get it. Hey, guys, it's just Jazz here. And I'm interfering with this little update because I know how much you guys love a download, how much you guys find these infographics very helpful, like following on from the massive success of the deep margin elevation infographic that we made after the episode with David Jadole, which, by the way, you can find on the Facebook. You can DM us on Instagram at Producer Dental, and we will send that to you. But this one, I'm going to make it really easy to download. So this is an infographic, a PDF download with a visual aid and a description. Basically summarizes this episode with Dr. McKee in a way that is presented quite nicely in the PDF with the, the, the Piper classification and the clinical implications uh, so it's easy for you to follow along in practice. So if you want to download this infographic, just head to protrusive.co.uk 
forward slash TMJ and you'll be able to get your copy for free. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'll return back to Dr. McKee. Now, I think it's wonderful how you can relate it to restorative dentistry. And the best gem there, just to really highlight it, is how you can how it can prompt you to communicate risk. And you're so right that, you know, just because someone has a, a Piper 4 uh, doesn't mean that you can't treat them. You, 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 you know, there's so many more factors. Uh, and I love that you no. uh, said that. Let's talk about imaging because there's so much we can cover in this podcast. I want to keep it going. So let's talk about imaging. Uh, in the intro uh, I recorded uh, just for speaking to you, uh, I mentioned about a story of a lady who I saw uh, when I was like a year out of dental school. She came in and she was completely um, like in acute pain. Her mandible was completely to one side. She couldn't fit her teeth together. She was in uh, horrific pain. And at the time, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I requested an OPG. And then my consultant was like, what the hell? You know, OPG shows nothing in this scenario. And that's how I learned at the time. So can you tell us, is there any value at all? Or is it a waste of time? Because I know there are different camps in having an OPG. Or should we always skip that and then opt for other forms of imaging? You, there, there's something you can learn from any image. So I want to make sure that we say that right up front. For an OPG, primarily what I would look for in terms of jaw joints is I would look at the ramus length. I think that's the best thing I can tell on an OPG. And generally, I can tell us one ramus length is shorter or longer than the other one. Almost universally, if we have one shorter or one longer, it's almost the one that's shorter that didn't develop as opposed to the one that's longer that grew more. So it's almost always a lack of growth. So panorexes themselves, though, in terms of being able to diagnose the condition of the joint, I don't have a lot of faith in because basically it's a two-dimensional x-ray. And any time we work with a two-dimensional x-ray, we have to understand that if we take a panorex and take a look at the condyle right, let's say at the lateral pole, all of a sudden, this is the only view we're seeing. The condyle may be very different at the medial pole. So that's why I think today... I think two-dimensional imaging has some really significant limitations in diagnosis for jaw joint problems. And today, I think that really, if we have a patient that we decide would benefit from imaging, then I think we want to look at three-dimensional imaging, such as an Brilliant. MRI so or a CT So tell us the difference scan. then between uh, an MRI and what information it gives you for someone uh, with a... Um, TMJ pathology, which we can discuss, and so, and and why you may opt for an MRI versus a CBCT, and what additional uh, information that might give you that an MRI can't. And then how do you decide, or is it a matter of some patients will need both? Let's talk about MRIs first, because that's what I learned first. I learned that from Mark in 1991, like I said. So MRIs basically will show disc position, and if we have a normal disc, if you put it on a clock face, the posterior attachment is going to be approximately one o'clock. Now, if you look at the literature, it's going to say 12 o'clock. But if you really read the literature, what it says is 12 o'clock plus or minus 10 degrees in 1990, when the paper was originally written by Drace. If you look at 1997, it says 12 o'clock plus or minus 30 degrees written by Ramelsberg, and when you see that type of variation, what it really <laughs> means is we don't know what normal is. So, 2012, 2011, Provenzano wrote a really nice article, and I think you've started to see more people build on that in the literature, that when we look at disc position, we really should be looking at the load-bearing part of the disc, mm -hmm. which is the thin part of the bow tie. If that's in a normal position, that's going to be about 11 o'clock because that's going to allow us to load against that. That's going to put our attachment at about 1 o'clock. So tw 1 o'clock would be normal. 12 o'clock is a mild displacement. 11 o'clock is a moderate displacement. 10 o'clock mm -hmm. is an advanced displacement. So we can tell disc position. We can also tell disc condition. Is it a normal size disc? Has the disc started to change shape because it's not getting proper 
nutrition? Is it swollen? So those are the main things. The other thing we can see is we can also look at the condition of the marrow space. Because many times what we'll see is we'll see swelling in the marrow space or we'll see swelling outside the condyle around the disc as well. So MRI is going to show it's going to emphasize soft tissue. So I'm looking at disc position, disc condition, and marrow condition. For a CT scan, I'm going to get a better look at the bone. One of the main things I'm going to look at at the bone is what's the size of the bone. Did the bone grow properly? Normal ramus lengths, we mentioned that before, should grow approximately to 65 millimeters ballpark. And again, this is all the, the concepts that I learned from Mark Piper. And also what you should have is a condyle size that it's approximately eight millimeters anterior to posterior and then 20 millimeters medial to lateral. So we can start to gauge our condyle condition. We can also gauge our condyle position because interestingly enough, if a disc comes off and is displaced, many times what the soft tissue does is displace the condyle posteriorly. We many times call it an anteriorly displaced disc. It could also be called a posteriorly displaced condyle because basically what happens is the disc and the mm -hmm. bone are fighting for the same space. If the disc comes off and moves forward and the condyle moves back, here's my question for the restorative dentist. How does that influence the position of the lower incisal edge? It's going to um, make you more class two or open your bite and, and you're going to be uh, having an anterior open bite of some degree. Exactly. Anytime we see a loss of dimension at the joint level, either because the condyle moves up or moves back, it's almost always going to relate to a class two bite shift unless one thing happens, mm -hmm. unless the teeth adapt. The teeth wear, the teeth move, but most of the time, if we see a change in joint dimension, we end up with a change in the occlusion. That's why, you know, we've, we've made TMD about pain. TMD is really about occlusion. Almost universally, you will see a bite change before a patient has pain. We're just not used to calling those class two bites problems that start at the joint level. So anyway, back to the CBCT. So we look at condyle size. We'll look at bone size and ramus length. And then I'm also going to look at the cortical plate of the condyle because that's a really important discussion point. In the growing patient, we want that to be open so the bone can continue to grow. In the adult patient, we want that to be closed or corticated so we know we have stable bone. If we think about it the other way, if we see a cortical plate in a 12-year-old that's mm -hmm. already corticated, that means they're done growing. That's almost always in response to having an early disc displacement because the disc in the growing patient is there to protect the bone as it grows. And if the disc comes off in a growing patient, many times growth will slow down or arrest itself. And as a result now, those are when we see many of the facial asymmetries, the retronathic mandible cases we talk about. So that's where the discussion becomes important in the growing patient. And in the adult patient, as I said before, if you've got a condyle that isn't corticated, those are the patients, in my experience, that tend to have an increase in pain. Is that something that would typically be termed as a uh, idiopathic condylar resorption, and therefore you have this you know, middle-aged lady coming in, and uh, she, she's developing an anterior open bite, which wasn't there before, and she's getting pain? It, that's the kind of stuff that I've seen in a few uh, emergency settings and in secondary care. Uh, is that the kind of thing that you would expect in, in that kind of a population? You know, it's interesting. Emerg idiopathic condylar resorption, in my view, is really early onset joint disease. And I think many of those resorption cases are cases that never grew. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know it because we're not used to imaging young kids. I mean, since I started imaging young kids, I can't believe how many patients have joint-based problems far earlier than we think. You know, again, Mark Piper talked about two types of joint problems, developmental and degenerative. And I think as a profession, we think that the majority of the problems that occur are degenerative in nature where people grow completely and then break down.
I've really changed my thinking. I think that many of the cases that we see are developmental and start far earlier in life than we think, and the patient just never grows completely. By the time we image it, we just saw the problem, so we thought it was resorption, but I don't think they ever got there. I want to go back to CTs for one second because we talked about the things we could look at. So I'm going to look at bone size. I'm going to look at condyle condition and position, same thing. I'm going to look at the airway because I want to see nasal airway. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm amazed at how many deviated septums we have. I'm amazed at how many compressed pharyngeal airway, how much compressed pharyngeal airway anatomy there is. And then lastly, I'm going to look at the upper cervical spine. That's an area that as dentists, we can do a great job screening for. And there's a lot of people who have head and neck pain that's coming from upper cervical spine misalignments mm -hmm. that we think maybe is coming from the occlusion of the joints. So in terms of what you get from imaging, those are the things. So for MRI, disc position, disc condition, and marrow space. For CBCT, condyle position, condyle condition airway, upper cervical spine. And to follow up on that, most of the time when I am going to request imaging, I'm going to get both. And the reason is because if I don't have the MRI, then I'm guessing at the soft tissue. And I don't have the CT scan, then I'm guessing at the hard tissue. And I did that when I was younger. I don't want to do that now. I mean, patients... Patients I've learned over the years come to you for two things. They want answers and they want options. I can't give them answers if I only have half the story. Mm -hmm. And I really can't give them good treatment options either. So that's why when I see a new patient, my first examination with them is going to be taking a history and doing a clinical exam. And once I've done that, then we'll figure out what diagnostic records we need. So the second appointment will be diagnostic records, and then the third appointment will be consultation. My case acceptance increased dramatically after I went to that format because I found if I did everything in one appointment, I was overwhelming the patient. I was giving them too much information. That's a really great insight, and I love how you broke down the MRI versus CBCT and how uh, you feel that the you know they should get both because otherwise you're you're missing half the picture. Now you just mentioned about the point about in in, in your practice when you see a patient, you have the history examination, yeah. then you have your diagnostics and the consultation. Are you uh, routinely taking an MRI and CBCT scan for every new patient? Or is this the patient who specifically has a joint-based history or joint-based complaint and or has been referred to you for a joint issue or a rehabilitation? Give us a, a flavor of that. I, I, I do not image every patient. So I, I want to say that straight up front. Let's tie that back to the Piper classification because that really relates to who I image. So generally, if... After my history and my exam, my tentative Piper diagnosis is a 4A, 4B, 5A, or 5B. That's usually when I recommend imaging. So if I think it's a 1 to 3B, then usually I'll just get mounted study casts and, and digital photography and do any type of sleep screening we may need to. But if I think if it's a 4A to 5B, that's when I'll go ahead and get the MRI and the CBC. That's very useful. So that's how I determine who I image. And basically, really, from, from the exam, I think the most two important aspects of the exam are the history in terms of what's happened at the joint, what type of treatment have they had, what's your pain history, and what's your trauma history. So those are the four histories that I'll take. And then really, I'm going to look at the bite. You know, again, Mark Piper taught me this a long time ago to read the bite. And if we check the bite with the joints in the socket, the thickness of the disc is about two millimeters. If the anterior teeth are uncoupled greater than the thickness of the disc, I'm beginning to think that I've lost the disc and the bite's uncoupled. 
That's really interesting. I think nowadays, when, when now that we have intraoral scanners, I think it's, it's going to be great, hopefully in the future, to be able to not only just rely on photos, but scan people's arches uh, and bites routinely, even if they're you know, nothing to do with the Piper uh, Beyond 3. But in, in, in the future, when we notice a change and how much more we'll be able oh. to finally realize that, ah, something has changed, the teeth are the same, so what's happened at the joint level? I completely agree with you. I completely agree 100%. And, you know, we have a trio scanner. We've been using it for five years now. It's fabulous. Likewise. Um, now, great... the next few, I mean, thank you for all that uh, wonderful information. I think you really explained uh, these uh, terms really well. So uh, I'm going to really make it extremely clinical and tangible now. And there's only so much we can cover um, in this uh, sort of podcast uh, format. So I'll ask you at the end, where can dentists learn more about this for, from you? But in terms of actually making it clinically relevant, Here's some uh, tricky uh, questions I'm going to ask you. And these are tricky, not because I'm being awkward, but these are tricky real-world questions that we may or may not have answers to. So, for example, if you have someone with a 3A, so everyone remember, 3A, that's when they have a lateral pole, uh, perhaps that's um, uh, with reduction, okay? Uh, And you have someone with a 4A, and that's when your medial medial pole is uh, involved, but it's a, a disc displacement with reduction. Is it possible to clinically diagnosed because they may, they both may present to a, a, with a click to a varying degree and they're both with displacement. So is there a clinical way to determine whether they're a 3A or a 4A? No. That's part of the, that's part of the confusion because, you know, occlusion at the tooth level is easy because we can see it. Occlusion at the joint level, we can't see it. So we have to do our best guess from what we find for the exam. So if it's a 3A, I would expect to hear not a lot of pain, not a lot of headaches, not a lot of jaw locking, someone who may do pretty well with this. If it's a 4A and they say they've got more pain, they've got more jaw locking, their bite feels more uneven, that tips me in thinking that it's a it's a 4A as opposed to a 3A. But that's an awesome question because... You know, for years, that question comes up. Is there a way to know definitively without seeing? And there really isn't. So you just kind of have to go by feel on which cases you think you need to get the additional information. Is there any evidence or do you know from your um, history of practicing in this area whereby if you see someone with a a Piper 2 or a Piper 3A, that when you follow these patients up, will they remain stuck on that? Or is it always a progressive uh, disorder? I'm glad you asked that question. It is not always a progressive disorder. You can have patients stay a 3A their entire life. So I'm glad you asked that. Many times the classification system is misunderstood as a progressive disorder. But if I have someone who's a 3A and stable, most of the time, if they don't have another joint injury, they'll stay that way their whole life usually. So I've changed my thinking over the years. I used to think that the bite caused the disc to displace because that's what I was taught. I really think now that it it tends to have more of an injury that impacts the ligament attachment of the disc to the bone. I don't think the bite causes the disc to come off the way I was taught when I was younger. The old saying was a bad bite would cause a bad joint. Very good. That's a, that's a very good way to think about it, actually. Uh, so essentially, you said there that someone may stay on a 3A their entire life, and as long as they're stable, that's okay. To make that um, clinically tangible, that's our patients uh, who many, you know, 20% or whatever, have asymptomatic clicking, right? So... Um, some dentists get very phased and, and worried about these clicks and then, and then when they diagnose them and then patients right. start to worry about their clicks. So sometimes we have a huge role in just reassuring a patient and doing a wider history, wider examination, taking a note of their range of motion and then monitoring these things over time to then help you decide whether it is progressing or is it um, staying still. Is that a fair way to think about it? I completely agree with that. You know, I see a lot of patients with asymptomatic clicks and dentists get really concerned about it. When you ask the patient, they've been clicking for 20 years and they don't have any bite problems. In a case like that, I'm gonna monitor it. There, There is one asymptomatic click though that I would say that we should pay more attention to. And that's in the growing female. If there is a 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old girl with an asymptomatic click that doesn't hurt yet, to me, that warrants further investigation. Only because many times pain won't develop 
to the mid to late teen years. And many times those patients are patients that have displaced discs and aren't growing. And if we could reestablish that condyle disc interface with maybe some type of functional orthodontic appliance, we may be able to positively influence growth. So if it's an asymptomatic click in a very growing good. patient. That's very useful to know. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, next question, because we're, we're, oh my God, I can't believe how fast time has gone, uh, Jim. Uh, the next question I have is deviations and deflections. Some patients have deviations and some patients have deflections. The way I was taught was a deviation is when they make a V-shape and a deflection is when they just go off to, to one side. Um, this is, I, I imagine, a area of concern and it, if someone has a deviation or a deflection, is that when you are now thinking of uh, having your full workup and imaging as part of the, uh, the way to get the exact diagnosis? Well, any type of a deviation or deflection is typically because the disc isn't in the right place. I mean, if you really think about it, deviations are typically where you're going to open, let's say you open to the, to the right usually that's because your right condyle isn't moving. It's not translating forward. So I probably would want to take a look at that if the patient understands there's a problem. Because I think we really have to be careful here. We really have to do a good job with patient education because so many times dentists get more upset about the problem than it really is because the patient's really doing quite well. And the patient may need diagnosis, but they may, not, they may not understand why they need diagnosis. So that's why I would say just be careful and create the value for the diagnostics so the patient's able to understand what the problem is. In terms of uh, some type of deflection, usually as they're coming forward, the disc is in the way and they're having to go around it. So again, many times imaging would help. Um, but again, patients have to understand what the problem is. Brilliant. And that, and that leads to, you're, you're so right in terms of the patient must be able to have enough value, have enough understanding and the importance in their own sort of anatomical terms as to why this could be an issue in the future uh, if unaddressed. And therefore, that then builds value into the actual diagnostics, uh, which, is, which is an important thing to convey to the patient. So I completely agree with you on that. Um, and, and this is going to be the final question because there's, there's so much we can do. I'm going to have to invite you back for a part two because it's been incredibly useful. Um, I think this has been excellent. You have to appreciate that, guys. Um, Dr. McKee right now is in vacation in a beautiful to. part of the world, and he's giving Absolutely up some time love. to record today. So, again, thank you so much. You're very kind. Uh, so the next question then, let me get my, my list. Okay, so what okay. is um, – because every patient is unique. Every joint um, MRI, CBCT will come back with a unique proposition. But uh, just as a sweeping statement, if possible, for a generic average case, if they have someone who's getting, let's say, uh, with a Piper – 3B. So that's when they have a um, disc displacement without reduction and it's infecting the lateral pole. Uh, and maybe they're also presenting with deviations and or deflections. What is your typical regimen in terms of what kind of treatment they may be looking at? I.e., are you actually looking to change the shape of the teeth, change the occlusion away to better accommodate the joint? Or are, we, are you generally going to be at that point involving an orthodontist? Or is it usually something in, in a removable appliance that you want to get things corrected in first before committing to anything a bit more invasive? If, it depends on what they present with. If they have problems, my typical first approach would be some type of an appliance. I do a lot of flat plane appliances. With a Piper 3B, you could also do an anterior deprogrammer as well. So that's, that's the situation. So it would be easy to do that as well. Um, I tend to do more flat plane appliances for joints, though, because I tend to have better success having support all the way around. Um, I generally, if, if they're not having any problems and they're just clicking, a lot of times I'm just going to monitor it, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I might do an equilibration if the teeth present with that, because what I'm trying to do is to try and maintain and protect the teeth. So if I could change the load distribution at the tooth level and that would benefit them, I would do that. Um, but I'm, I may not do that necessarily simply to treat the joint. Really, I know that was a really um, unfair question, tricky question, because there's so much to it. And this is why I enjoy this area so much, because it's very fascinating and something that's really skimmed over in, in dental school. So, Dr. Mickey, tell us more. 
Where can we learn more about this? Do you have any um, seminars that you run specifically about this? Because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, they often um, really resonate with a speaker. They really like a speaker. And I'm always flooded with, uh, with questions usually on my Instagram saying, uh, hey, that guest you had on, um, how can I learn more about that? So please do tell us where we can learn more from you. Well, I would say the best place now is Spear Education, um, the Occlusion Seminar. Um, is a two day seminar and I teach, uh, 25% of that course. Frank Spear, if you've not heard Frank Spear, go hear Frank Spear. Frank's. Everyone on this podcast who's listening has definitely heard of Frank Spear. I, I guarantee yeah. that. Yeah. He, he's, he's fantastic to listen to. Frank is, explains things so well. And Greg Kinzer is just such a talented dentist. I really enjoy teaching that. And then the advanced occlusion workshop as well. Um, I also do study club programs for different study clubs, and I've lectured, like I say, I've been really fortunate. I've lectured all over the world. So uh, I do a lot of study club programs. I do national meetings. Um, I have a little bit more time now, so I'm looking to put together something a little bit more structured, so I'll have more information for you that in upcoming uh, podcasts. Please do. And, uh, you know, you can always send it to me and I'll be happy to share it with the Petrucerati. Sure. So the name I'm given to the listeners is Petrucerati. And they're always like the geekiest bunch and they always want more and more knowledge. Uh, and they love uh, guests like you who break down a very complex topic. So I'm hoping everyone, there's no excuse. If you listen to the end of this podcast and you cannot now uh, recite the entire Piper classification and its clinical connotations, then you... It's, it's impossible. You've definitely got that nailed. So, uh, Dr. Jim McKee, thank you so much for giving your time on vacation to cover this really complex topic, but broken it down in such a simple and beautiful to understand way. I really appreciate it. It was such a treat, Jazz. I can't thank you enough for having me, and I'd love to come back anytime that works for you. Oh, we're going to definitely have you back. Thank you so much. Well, there we are, guys. I told you you'd be able to gain so much from this. So by now, you must know the Piper classification. You know a few other classifications out there. You know now the value of an MRI and a CBCT, and maybe not so much an OPG, but now you know why that's not going to give you as much information as you need. And hopefully now, when you have your patient that has these clicks, you're able to really close your eyes and think, okay, which Piper classification is this? How might this affect what I will say to the patient in terms of their risk going forward? So I hope you enjoyed this. I'm definitely going to bring Jim back in the future because I just love talk, talking about topics like these. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining all the way to the end. I really appreciate it. Do check out the Protrusive Dental podcast uh, Instagram. It's at Protrusive Dental. And if you enjoy this episode, please, would you consider leaving a review on Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts if you listen on Apple? And if you leave a few comments, I love reading them. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Same time, same place. Mm -hmm.